All right, all right. We're going to hit the ground running this morning. Um, Our series this morning is called Knowing Jesus Through the Old Testament. So today, what we want to walk out of here knowing is, how did Jesus read the Old Testament himself? And how do New Testament writers in the Bible use the Old Testament in their writings in order to paint for us a clearer picture of who Jesus is and what his mission in the world is. And we're going to do that this morning by uh, studying uh, our passage from Matthew chapter 21, which actually is usually preached on Palm Sunday. It begins this way, As Jesus and the disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the town of Bethphage on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of them on ahead. Go into the village over there, he said. As soon as you enter it, you'll see a donkey tied there with his colt beside it. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone asks you what you're doing, just say, the Lord needs them, and he'll immediately let you take them. This took place to fulfill the prophecy that said, tell the people of Jerusalem, look, your king is coming to you. He is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. Now, some of you know that that uh, prophecy comes from the Old Testament book of Zechariah chapter 9. But if you don't understand how the New Testament uses Old Testament quotes, then you could be drawn into some pointless arguments about this whole passage of the Bible. For instance, if you are very, very conservative in your Bible reading, that you, you might argue that the Old Testament is just, or the New Testament is, no, I was right before, the Old Testament is full of these predictions of every little thing that Jesus was going to do, including the type of animal he would ride into town in when he came. Now, if you're uber-liberal with your scriptures, you would argue, well, Jesus had already read the Old Testament, so he knew how to fake up these moments to make himself look like the Messiah. So he could say, oh, it says here that I'm going to ride a donkey, so hey, go get me a donkey, and when I ride in, it'll look like I'm the coming Messiah, and it'll get everybody all stirred up. And so the two of you from these opposing viewpoints will then go round and round and like two cats trapped in a burlap bag, uh, miss the entire point of everything. So we're going to go on a short journey this morning to untangle this knot of how you relate the Old Testament to the New Testament. I want to tell you this morning uh, will probably change the way that you read both forever. You'll probably never read the Old Testament and the New Testament the same after this morning. Okay, so we're going to begin our journey to understand how the Old Testament is used by the New Testament. I still need one more uh, thing. I need a summary of Star Trek The Next Generation, Season 5, Episode 2. Remember, this is the, the one where Captain Picard and they meet these aliens, and they, uh, they can't understand or communicate with the aliens because the aliens speak in these random names and places. That's their whole language. Remember this one? And they can't understand what they're saying. And so the captain of the aliens kidnaps Picard. They go to this planet where they learn that the secret to understanding one another is to learn their ancient stories. And then they can understand the meanings of the names and places that they're talking about. And then by the end of the episode, they can communicate. So anybody got the the summary? Oh, we have it on the computer. What a coincidence. Okay. Well, so we're going to watch a summary of Star Trek Season 5, Episode 2. Watch how they can't communicate. Then they learn the key to communicate is to know the stories, and then they can talk. All right? So uh, on screen. Captain's Log, Stardate 45047.2. The Enterprise is en route to the uninhabited Eladrell system. 
Its location is near the territory occupied by an enigmatic race known as the Children of Tama. The Children of Tama were called incomprehensible by Captain Silvestri of the Shikamaru. Other accounts were comparable. Indeed, but are they truly incomprehensible? Rai and Jiri and Luka. Rai of Luwani. Luwani under two moons. Jiri of Umbaya. Mr. Data. The Tamarian seems to be stating the proper names of individuals and locations. Yes, but what does it all mean? Block their transport of the shields. Extend to maximum range. Darmok and Gillard at Tanagra. On screen. You're holding our captain. I want him released. Darmok at Tanagra. Your action could be interpreted as an act of war. Until his eyes closed. Is there any way to get through to them? Not without further study. Timber. Timber. What does that mean? Fire. Does timber mean fire? Timber. His arms wide. Timber is a person. Darmark and Tanagra. Shaka. Computer, search for the term Darmark in all linguistic databases for this sector. A mytho-historical hunter on Chantil 3. Timber. His arms wide. <laughs> What did you find out? Their ability to abstract is highly unusual. They seem to communicate through narrative imagery, a reference to the individuals and places which appear in their mytho-historical accounts. It's as if I were to say to you, Juliet on her balcony. An image of romance. Exactly. If we know how they think, shouldn't we be able to get something across in them? No, sir. The situation is analogous to understanding the grammar of a language, but none of the vocabulary. If I didn't know who Juliet was, or what she was doing on that balcony, the image alone wouldn't have any meaning. That's correct. For instance, we know that Darmok was a great hero, a hunter, and that Tanagra was an island. But that's it. Without the details, there's no understanding. It is necessary for us to learn the narrative from which the Tamarians draw their imagery. Temba, his arms open. Give me more about Darmok on the ocean. Darmok at Tanagra. At Tanagra. They arrive separately. They, they struggled together against a common foe. Darmok, Angelad on the ocean. They left together. Scattering field is down, sir. O'Brien, energize. Hail the Tamarian vessel. Aye, Captain. Cinder! His face black, his eyes red. Tamak. The river Tamak. In winter. Tamak. And July. At Tanagra. Damak and Jalad on the ocean.
So Karth, his eyes open! The beast of Tanagra. Uzani, his army. Shaka, when the walls fell. All right, I promise I'm not messing with you. <laughs> that is going to be the key to understanding how the New Testament and how Jesus uses the Old Testament. I also want to promise any of you who may be here for the first time, just because just I'm a nerd doesn't mean that everyone in the congregation is a nerd. We had, we had three seniors last year graduate with football scholarships, so there are, there are lots and lots of normal people here too. You're, you're fine. You're fine. Even everyone here thinks I'm weird, right? Okay, so before we get to what his uh, understanding of how the Old Testament paints us a picture of Jesus, I want to look at the scripture passages that you interpreted and see what you thought the main idea was. So we'll go ahead and bring those boards up if you wouldn't mind and put them across while I, I'm going to read the first one. So the first one that a team had to interpret was, uh, yeah, let's just go ahead and put them here, and then that one there, and on down we go. All right. Zechariah 9, yes. Look, your king is coming to you. He is victorious and righteous, yet he is humble riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. I will remove the battle chariots from Israel and the war horses from Jerusalem. I will destroy all the weapons used in battle, and your king will bring, bring peace to the nations his realm will stretch from sea to sea. So that team was asked, what kind of king is God sending? And what does he promise to do? You said a king, a humble king is coming to bring peace. Absolutely. I don't think there's any other meaning anybody would get from Zechariah 9 than that. Well done. Let's go to the next team scripture, which was a prayer from Psalm 118. Let's read this. My enemy did their best to kill me, but the Lord rescued me. The Lord is my strength and my, and my song. He has given me victory. Song of joy and victory are sung in the camp of the godly. The strong right arm of the Lord has done glorious things. The strong right arm of the Lord is raised in triumph. The strong right arm of the Lord has done glorious things. I will not die. Instead, I will live to tell what the Lord has done. The Lord has punished me severely, but he did not let me die. For me, the gates where the right, uh, open for me the gates where the righteous enter, and I will go in and thank the Lord. The gates lead to the presence of the Lord, and the godly enter there. I thank you for answering my prayer and giving me victory. The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is wonderful to see. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Please, Lord, please save us. Please, Lord, please give us success. Bless the one who comes in the name of the Lord. So those of you who had that scripture, thank you for doing that. That was a little longer. And you were asked two questions. What type of treatment does the writer expect from people? And what do they expect from God? And you said they expect rejection and death from people and expected to be victorious and be saved by God. I don't think there's any question that this prayer was written for people who uh, are dealing with that sort of a thing in the Old Testament. Well done. Okay, then let's look at a prophet. Isaiah chapter 56, which says, I will bless the foreigners who commit themselves to the Lord, 
who serve him and love his name, who worship him and do not desecrate the Sabbath day of rest, and who hold fast to my covenant. I will bring them to my holy mountain of Jerusalem. I will fill them with joy in my house of prayer. I will accept the burnt offerings and sacrifices because my temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations. For the sovereign Lord who brings back the outcast of Israel says, I will bring others too besides my people of Israel. You were asked, what does this verse say that God's going to do that might have surprised people in Old Testament times? And you said, God welcomes and accepts all people without judgment from all nations and backgrounds. Absolutely, I think that would be the big surprise. It wasn't just for Israel. It was for everyone. All right, you're doing great. Jeremiah 7, another prophet. It says, even now, quit your evil ways, and I will let you stay in your own land. But don't be fooled by those who promise you safety simply because the Lord's temple is here. They chant, the Lord's temple is here. The Lord's temple is here. But I will be merciful only if you stop your evil thoughts and deeds and start treating each other with justice. Only if you stop exploiting foreigners, orphans, and widows. Only if you stop murdering and only if you stop harming yourselves by worshiping idols. Then I will let you stay in this land that I gave your ancestors to keep forever. Don't be fooled into thinking that you will never suffer because the temple is here. It's a lie. Do you really think you can steal, murder, commit adultery, lie, and burn incense to Baal and all those other new gods of yours, and then come here and stand before me in my temple and chant, we are safe, only to go right back to all those evils again? Don't you yourselves admit that this temple which bears my name has become a den of thieves? You ask, what misunderstanding does God seem to be correcting here? And you said that people can continue to be sin. Uh, continue to sin and be safe as long as they are near the temple. Uh, what did people think would bring them safety? You said the temple. And what does God actually says bring them safety? To give up their sinful ways. I think that's really clear. Interesting that the den of thieves in Jeremiah means, you know, like a thieves hideout. That's where thieves, they live in this cave. Then they go out and they commit all these crimes. And then before they can get caught, they run back and hide in their cave. Jeremiah says, that's how you're using God's temple. You go out and you do all this evil stuff in the world, then you run in here and hide. You've turned this temple into a, a hideout for thieves. Okay, very good. I, I think, I think you, you got them all. So now for the main event. The main event was that we were going to interpret a New Testament uh, chapter, Matthew 21. Now I want to tell you that Matthew 21 is normally considered a hard passage of Scripture to interpret. Sermons from Matthew 21 are often long, complicated, convoluted, and at the end of the sermon, unconvincing. I, I have heard these sermons. Uh, friends, I have preached these sermons from Matthew 21, long, complicated, convoluted, and at the end, unconvincing. They're not like these passages you just read, which were actually pretty easy to understand. And that's the key. That's the key. Right there. You've already been given the keys to unlock Matthew chapter 21 and unlock much of the New Testament this morning. And many of you have done it with no formal biblical training. So now we're going to read Matthew 21 together. And when we come to a hard part, your interpretations of the passages it's quoting are going to provide the meaning. Let's begin together. This will be the shortest sermon on Matthew 21 you will ever hear. 
thank you. Pat yourselves on the back. Here it is. As Jesus and the disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the town of Bethphage on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of them on ahead. Go into the village over there, he said, and as you enter it, you'll see a donkey tied there with its colt beside it. Untie them, bring them to me. If anyone asks what you're doing, just say the Lord needs them and he'll immediately let you take them. This took place to fulfill the prophecy that said, tell the people of Jerusalem, look, your king is coming to you. He is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. Interesting, what does this moment mean with the donkey? Now we could have a 10-minute explanation from the pastor, or they're quoting an Old Testament passage. Let's just go back and see what you said the meaning of the passage was. That a humble king is coming to bring peace. Okay, we're done. That's good. That is the meaning of Jesus riding into Jerusalem. Well done. Let's go on to verse 6 then. The two disciples did as Jesus commanded. They brought the donkey and colt to him. They threw their garments over the colt and he sat on it. Most of the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him. The others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. Jesus was in the center of the procession. And the people all around him were shouting, Praise God for the Son of David. Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise God in the highest heaven. Do they really have to quote an Old Testament passage to say that people were excited to see Jesus? The interesting thing about this is these are the same people whom you may know in just a few days are going to cry out, crucify him. What does this say about Jesus coming to Jerusalem as the Messiah? They praise him coming in. They crucify him before he can leave. Is he a failed Messiah? Did God know this was going to happen? Is this really part of the story? Well, they're quoting a prayer from Psalm 118. What did the prayer mean? You said that the one praying this prayer expected rejection and death, but expected that God would make them victorious and they would be saved. Okay, there you have it. As Jesus rides into Jerusalem, all things are known. The Old Testament quote told you that. It tells you what's about to happen in the story and that it's not a surprise to God. Well, great. Let's go to the hardest part of Matthew 21. The entire city of Jerusalem was in an uproar as he entered. Who is this, they asked, and the crowds replied, it's Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out all the people buying and selling animals for sacrifice. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. Is Jesus really kicking chairs out from under people like a junior high kid? Yes, oh my word. He said to them, the scriptures declare my temple will be called a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. This is the maddest you will ever see Jesus. If we're gonna follow Jesus, we need to understand When he got the maddest he ever got, what was the problem? Lots of interpretations, and you've probably heard them all before. First of all, maybe it's wrong to sell stuff in churches and temples. Maybe it's not the place to be buying and selling stuff. Maybe we need to go out in the lobby right after this service and knock over Militia Masiewski's, whatever that Polish name is, (laughs) Masiewski. We need to knock over her coffee pots and we need to take Marta's mug she's selling and smash them on the floor. That's one interpretation. Maybe there were cheating people out there, and that's what got Jesus so upset. They're being dishonest. He called it a den of thieves. That's an interpretation you hear a lot. Except all four Gospels tell this story, and not one of them managed to use the word dishonesty or cheating. 
They're selling animals that you need to sacrifice during the Passover, and they're trading coins because people have come all over the Roman Empire to get down to one coin that could be used in the temple. So if you want to go with the dishonesty interpretation, it's kind of a jump because there's nothing in Scripture that says that. Maybe another interpretation is it's where the market was. It was in the, the outer court, which is called the court of Gentiles. Did you know that the temple is laid out in concentric circles? In the center is the most holy place or the holy of holies. Only the high priest can go there only once a year. Then there's the holy place. Only priest can go there. Then there's the inner court. Only Jewish men may go there to pray and discuss the scriptures. Then there's the court of women. I know it's super sexist, but that's where they were in the first century. But the court of women, only Jewish women could go there to pray and to discuss the scriptures. Then the outer court, the court of Gentiles, which was set aside for people who weren't Jewish, but wanted to come pray to the God of Israel and discuss the writings of Israel. And so this is where this market is filled with cows and sheep and doves and money changers and people bartering in all these different languages. Maybe Jesus was mad because because they'd edged out the Gentiles of a place to worship. Well, it doesn't, it doesn't exactly say that's what the problem is. Or does it? Let's find out. He quoted two Old Testament scriptures for us. He said, It is said my father's house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Well, the house of prayer, quote, comes from Isaiah 56. What did you say that meant? That God welcomes and accepts all people without judgment from all nations and backgrounds? Hmm. And then he said, you've made it a den of thieves. That was from Jeremiah. What did that mean? That they thought people could continue to sin and be safe as long as they're near the temple, that the temple was their salvation. The only way they could really be saved is to give up their sinful ways. So it is about what's there. Because he quotes something about God's going to save the whole world not just this place in the temple and everybody who's huddled up in it. And you've got to get out and quit oppressing. Remember foreigners, it said, widows and orphans. That's why he's whipping people out of the temple. He's saying, you've built this whole religious system. This is not what it's about. I'm going to go out into the whole world. This place is not the religious center of the universe. And he kind of got worked up and kicked some chairs and tables over. Because this was his mission, his reason to come into the world. We've been studying this whole series. And, and you've just discovered the meaning of one of the hardest passages. So what is our Bible lesson from Matthew 21? Jesus rides into Jerusalem, say that a humble king is coming to bring peace, that he will be rejected and experience death, but God will save him and make him victorious. He will then welcome all people of all nations all around the world. No temple is going to save you. In fact, that temple will someday be destroyed. But if you give up your sinful ways, and take part in God's mission to the whole world, you'll be saved. That was the same thing Captain Picard did in Star Trek. Until they knew the aliens' stories, they couldn't understand the aliens' language. But once they knew the aliens' stories, then they could decipher the meanings from the words they were dropping in, which they thought were random quotes. But they weren't random quotes. Each name and place those aliens spoke brought a whole story about, in that episode, two races coming together. The same thing just happened in Matthew chapter 21 while you watched. If we don't know the Old Testament scriptures that Jesus is quoting, then we can't really understand what Jesus is saying. 
But when we go back and look and find the meaning of these quotations, then we can understand the true meaning of everything he did that first day he rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Those weren't just random quotes dropped in to say he's going to ride a donkey and they sure were happy to see him. They brought in whole stories about what God is doing in the world so that we wouldn't miss it. They weren't random. They're a proclamation of who the, his king would be and what his kingdom would be like. And you did it. Well done. So sometimes around the house, believe it or not, I do some really stupid things. And I really uh, irritate my wife. And when she catches me dumb-handed, you know, <laughs> right there doing something dumb, I have this little line I say to her. I am not a smart man. <laughs> that is more than just an admission of my stupidity, right? That's a movie quote. What movie does that come from? Everyone knows the story. In fact, that's not even the whole quote. That's just a portion. Who can finish it? I'm not a smart man, but... That's what I'm saying to her. And because she does know the whole story of Forrest and Jenna, she knows that I am expressing, yes, I'm ignorant, but there is, I have a lifelong devotion to you. If she did not know the story of Forrest Gump, she would miss the meaning of what I said. I'm not a smart man. Darn right. <laughs> and she would miss, but I know what love is. And it's you and me, and it's you putting up with me and choosing me when you could have done so much better. And, and that, that is the intensity of the story that's being told. So next time you're reading your New Testament and you find an Old Testament quote dropped in, don't just take the words at face value. Here's what I want you to do. This is a Bible study method. Step one, pause. Step two, use your Bible footnotes to go find where that came from and read the whole chapter of the Old Testament that that little line came from. And then imagine you're reading that and you've never heard of Jesus. If you were reading that Old Testament passage hundreds of years, thousands of years sometimes before Jesus, what would it have meant to you? Write down in just a sentence the main idea of the chapter it came from. Now go back into the New Testament, reread the passage, and when you get to the quote, say the meaning you wrote down aloud and see if it doesn't unlock the meaning of what Jesus just said or did. Darmok and Picard at Tanagra. For you Bible nerds, this Bible study skill is called intertextuality, and now you may go Google it and read all the wonderful books on it. But this will now take us into the season of Advent and Christmas together. We're going to finish this journey of knowing Jesus through the Old Testament together by studying the names of Jesus that he used for himself. Son of God, I am. Servant of the Lord and Son of Man. Because these are all Old Testament names. And when we uncover the meaning they had in the Old Testament, we will come to understand who Jesus was telling us that he was and why he came to us in the Christmas season. Are you ready to do this together? Yep. Okay, a little preview. Oh, come let us adore him. Oh, come let us adore him. Oh, come let us Adore him, Christ the Lord. Right. So let us stand up.
and proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. Hallelujah. The gifts of God for the people of God. Each day, may Christ be as real to us as this food and this drink. Together, let us pray the prayer that our Lord has taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let us stand together. So God said here, it's not hanging out in this temple that saves you. It's, it's what you do when you go out from this temple in the world. So here's a prayer from St. Francis of Assisi that reminds us what we should be doing this week. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light where there is sadness, joy. O divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen. Let us go forth as his agents. Amen. Amen. Go in peace. Happy Thanksgiving.